Today I'll be reading from 1 Kings. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belonged to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. delight to welcome all of you here to this service of worship today. It's good that we can be here in God's house to sing His praises and especially on this Youth Sunday and we appreciate uh, the young people and their leadership in worship at both services uh, this day. One uh, announcement that I forgot to tell Jack to make and that is those of you serving on the Congregational Care Committee, you may pick up your cards in the office on the ledge. They are ready today to be picked up. And for the benefit of those who are visiting with us today, uh, we're certainly glad you're here. We, through this season of Lent, have been uh, having a sermon series, not on a particular book or set of passages, but on the, the topic of the art of sacrifice. And we've kind of been jumping around in Scripture from the Old Testament to the New and, and, and mainly in the Old Testament, really, as it turns out. But we'll uh, uh, continue to move through uh, this series today in a kind of different way. You know, some of the previous sermons were things you would expect to hear in sermons talking about sacrifice, uh, love, and a willingness to lay down one's life uh, for someone else and humility and, and those kinds of things are some of the sermons we've already had in this series. But today we're talking about faith and maybe that's not the first thing that would pop into your mind uh, when it comes to thinking about uh, living a life of sacrifice. You know, uh, I take the Charlotte Observer, and if you take the Observer, you know during the last week and a half, almost every front page had something on it about the former mayor of Charlotte and all that has gone on with that. And you know, anybody who takes over a position of leadership, whether it's a local mayor or whether it's a, a state senator or whether it's a pastor 
or a prime minister or whatever it happens to be, uh, that person sort of brings their own style of leadership uh, to that position. And we've been reading in the Charlotte Observer about uh, the style of leadership of the former mayor and many allegations that have been made, but it just goes to show us that whether you're a politician or, a, or a, a king or a queen or whatever you happen to be, uh, you have your own style of leadership, and that's what we uh, see behind the scenes of our passage today because we're talking about the northern kingdom of Israel. This is after the tribes of Israel have split, and there are now two kingdoms, There's the northern kingdom referred to as Israel and there's the southern kingdom referred to as the kingdom of Judah. And King Ahab was a king of the northern kingdom from 869 to 850 B.C. And he began to put his stamp, his style of leadership upon that kingdom. He began to build a kingdom at the expense of the poor people of the land. And not only did he, he push this material prosperity and this extensive building program, but he did so at the expense of the worship of the living God, the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because he married the infamous Jezebel. You know, even if you don't know a lot about the Old Testament, most all of us have heard of Jezebel, who was the daughter of of the king of Tyre. And because she was from Phoenicia, she was a worshiper of Phoenician gods like Baal. And as we can tell from Scripture, Jezebel was a strong-minded woman who was filled with what one scholar called an almost missionary zeal for her God. And she did her best to make sure that the worship of Baal was the official religion of the court and of the northern kingdom as a whole. Now, my purpose today is not just to give a history lesson. This mention of the economic and religious times in the land is to help us better understand the story that we uh, just had read for us by Roddy in 1 Kings 17. You see, the pagans believed that Baal was the rider of clouds, that he was the god of rain, and fertility, and therefore the God of prosperity. If the rains came and there was plenty of water, crops grew and and local economies were energized. This is what Jezebel was pushing all through Israel and her husband Ahab was letting her do that. This belief that Baal controlled the when and the how much of the rains that fell. But she didn't speak and metal unopposed. God had a prophet in the land by the name of Elijah. And we're introduced to him in this book of 1 Kings at the beginning of this 17th chapter. And we didn't read the first few verses, but I'm sort of going to rehearse for you some of the things that we found out in those verses. If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open it to 1 Kings 17. An interesting thing about Elijah as a prophet His name means Yah is El. In other words, Yahweh is God. And his whole career 
sort of went hand in hand with his name because he was trying to prove to the northern kingdom his whole life that God, the living God, Yahweh, was the true God. That's why at the beginning of this chapter, Elijah goes to King Ahab and says in verse 1, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now notice he didn't say these months. He didn't say these days. He said these years except by my word. And we can see what's happening. With those words, Elijah throws down the gauntlet. He's challenging Baal to a duel. Who can really manufacture rain? Is it Baal or is it the living God? Now, do you think those words made Elijah a popular man? Not at all. I mean, everyone within earshot must have wanted to do him harm. If there was no rain, there were no crops. No crops, there was no economy. No economy, no life. And that's why in verse 2 we see that God tells Elijah to go and hide. God has to get him out of there for his own safety. And he goes down by a little brook east of the Jordan River. That's really wild territory, wilderness. And he stayed there, we're told, until the water dried up. Because guess why? There was no rain. Now think about that for a moment. Put yourself in Elijah's place. You're a spokesperson for God. You've given His message to His people obediently. It has made you unpopular to the point that you fear for your life. And then after you hide in some forgotten place in the wilderness, what happens? Your water supply runs out. You know, we can do without a lot of things in this life. We can live without smartphones. The young people wouldn't believe this, but that's true. We don't have to have Krispy Kreme donuts, though it's nice. We don't even have to have ice cream. But we have to have water. Or most medical people will tell us we'll die in about three days. During this season of Lent, we've been learning that certain attitudes and actions enable the art of sacrifice. And today we can see that the art of sacrifice, not only does it include humility like we learned from Philippians 2, not only does it include love like we saw in Exodus 32, not only a willingness to lay down one's life like we saw in the book of Esther, but it also takes faith faith in God's power to provide. And this faith in God's provision is what makes sacrifice, even generosity, possible. That's what we'll notice in this passage today. You see, Elijah had to believe. He had to believe that God would care for him even in a time of drought, even when this little creek where he's been living dries up before his very eyes. I mean, think about some of the prayers he must have had with God. As he notices each day that brook 
dries up more and more. God, when are you going to do something? You know, I can't live without water. You're the one who told me to come here. Are you really going to care for me? Do you care at all that I'm losing my way of life? God could have told Elijah to strike a rock and produce water like He did with Moses and the children of Israel during their wilderness wanderings. How God provided water in the midst of the wilderness for, for hundreds of thousands of people. But God doesn't do that with Elijah. Instead, Roddy, in his passage that he read, he read us what God's plan was. Go to Zarephath which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. Now Sidon's way up on the Mediterranean coast in Phoenicia, north of Galilee even. And when God told Elijah that, I would imagine that his response was, Do what? That'd be like God telling you and me to go to Iraq or Afghanistan and put ourselves in the hands of an orphan. They'll care for you and keep you alive. Zarephath was a little town near the coast right in the heart of Baal territory. Only seven miles from Sidon, which was Jezebel's hometown. But going into the backyard of the enemy is not the only thing God is asking Elijah to do. He's telling him to make a substantial journey in a time of drought, some 65 miles by the map, and to place his life and well-being in the hands of this foreign widow. Now remember what we know about widows from Scripture. Are widows the wealthy in the land? They may be in this land sometimes, but they weren't in ancient times. They had no means of financial support. They were always the people who needed help from others. We see a good, uh, a good view of their type of life in the book of Ruth. You remember that Old Testament book? How Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth are both widows and they leave the, the land of Moab where they've been living to go back to the promised land where Naomi grew up because there was a time of famine. They were starving. And what do we see Ruth doing in that book? We see her out there stealing grain in someone else's field. Now, granted, the law allowed for it. The law allowed for the poor to reap right around the edges of the field. But she was basically stealing to keep them alive. That's what she was doing when she was noticed by Boaz, who eventually became her husband. But my point is, that was the life of a widow, always living right on the edge financially. And by the grace of God and the compassion and mercy of others. And God tells Elijah, This widow in Zarephath will care for you. During Alexander Solzhenitsyn's eight years in Russian prison camps, both of his parents died and his wife divorced him. And upon his release from prison, he was dying of a cancer that was growing so rapidly that he could feel the difference 
within a 12-hour span of time. It was at that point that he abandoned himself to God so beautifully illustrated in three lines of the prayer that came in that dark hour. He wrote, O God, how easy it is for me to believe in you. You created a path for me through despair. Now think about that. You created a path for me through despair, O God. You have used me. And where you cannot use me, you have appointed others. Thank you. God had appointed this widow. And Elijah, it seems to me, had to take a great leap of faith to make this journey and believe that that widow could really give him the care that he needed. But if you also remember or know what will happen to Elijah a little bit later on in his career, how he'll do battle with all those 400 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, how he'll be victorious, and then how he'll run for his life because of Jezebel's threats on his life, then this gift of friendship through this widow is all the more telling. Because Elijah despairs so much and feels so alone that he eventually wants to die. The life of faith can be hard, but you and I, we're never totally alone. Elijah would find out that truth because just when he wants to die and thinks that he's all alone, God comes to him and says there's 7,000 people in the land of Israel who have not bowed their knee to Baal. So with that in mind, get up and get about your business that I've called you to do. God has always appointed others to support us to pray for us, to encourage us, to walk along beside us. You think back to some of the roughest times in your life and you'll remember and you'll see how God was faithful to you to provide the people or the card or the message or the telephone call or the gift of friendship right when you needed it. In fact, He even gives us the gift of Himself. This is why Jesus says, I'm with you always. He doesn't just say, I'm with you. He says, I'm with you always, even to the close of the age. And when does He give us those words? It's within the context of the end of His great commission to us as His people in Matthew 28. Yes, the path of faith can be difficult. We might even despair, but we're never alone. And one thing we need to take from this story is that God has people even in places where we don't expect to find them. Here's this widow in a pagan land full of idols and false gods. And look at the first words out of her mouth. We find them there in verse 12 in our text where after Elijah asks her for food, she says, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. That's a statement of faith right there. As Yahweh, your God lives, 
She answers in the name of Elijah's God. And just as Elijah is living by faith, he tests her faith. He says to her, yes, you can care for your son, but first make me a little cake of it, this last little bit of flour you've got. First, make me a cake of it. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon this earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. We can see that she obviously trusts in God's promise. And her faith is rewarded. Elijah's word is confirmed. And the God of Israel becomes the giver and provider of life even in a time of death. Do you see how this woman's act of faith enables generosity? She is willing to give up her last meal on this earth because she believes in the faithfulness of God. Even though that food could conceivably keep her and her son alive another two to three weeks, she was actually willing to lay down her life and that of her son for Elijah. That's an unbelievably generous gift. But that's something faith can do. It can make us generous. Faith enables us to give tithes to this local church. Faith that God will provide for us even though we've given a tenth of our income already to the church. Faith enables us to give offerings to other ministries and helping organizations in this community, in this state, in this nation, and throughout the world. Faith that God will continue to provide for our needs and that of our families that He will pour down for us an overflowing blessing which He promises to do in Malachi 3 when we put Him to the test by giving tithes for the work of His kingdom. These young people, they've even expressed faith today. Their faith has allowed them to be generous with their time to prepare for this worship service and leading it today. If you go ask them, none of them will tell you that the number one item on their bucket list is to to lead in worship. In fact, Christopher really has faith because he had his prayer on his phone. (laughs) And I'm glad he was prepared, but that would just be more faith, I think, than I could muster. You know, we're talking about faith. And in the book of Hebrews, we find an author who talks about that in his 11th chapter. And he talks about all those people that we can read about in Scripture who live by faith. He talks about Abraham and and Isaac and Jacob. He talks about Moses. He talks about Rahab the harlot. He talks about all kinds of people who lived 
by faith. Then way on over in that chapter 11, he says, Time would fail me to tell of those who through faith won strength out of weakness. Surely that's a picture of this widow who though she remains nameless still speaks to us today by her example. And when we reflect on that example, we can see that God's call to sacrifice for His work and His plan is the path to plenty and not to loss. She was willing to enter the world of faith where God's thoughts are not our thoughts and His ways are not our ways. Who else but God would say to someone in that day and time, a widow will take care of you. And this story also points us toward the generosity of our God in that just as He was a giver and a provider of life in a time of death for Elijah and this widow and her son, so does He continue to provide life in this world of death through through the most generous gift we could ever imagine, His only begotten and perfect Son given up for our sins and for the sins of the world. But we have to believe that. We have to respond to that good news by faith and live by faith. This is what the people of Nazareth refused to do. You remember Nazareth was the town that Jesus grew up in. It was the town He had known most of His life. And Luke, in his gospel, the fourth chapter, tells us that one day on the Sabbath, Jesus was there in the synagogue, his home synagogue, reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And I can tell you from experience, it's not always easy to go into your home church and preach because people say, I knew him when he was a little fella, and he's still little. But but Jesus was there that day in his hometown synagogue reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And after he's finished, the people start coming up to him. What gracious words have come out of your mouth. Oh, they're just all excited about him until he begins to talk about the power of God that's at work in his life. And then, then the crowd began to be restless and even angry. We get the impression they wanted to see the same kind of healings, the miracles that he had performed up in Capernaum. But they were skeptical and didn't believe because they hadn't witnessed those miracles and they wanted to see something like it themselves. Jesus compared those townspeople of his to those of unbelief in Elijah's day and time. And the fact that God had to send Elijah to a widow, not in the land of Israel, but to in a foreign land to find a person of faith. If Jesus were in our midst today, what would He find? If He would walk through the door. We know He's here through the power of His Holy Spirit, but if He materialized in front of us, what would He find? We know this story tells us that faith in God can be found in unexpected places. 
And it may happen in ways we could not anticipate. Would God find faith here in this place? Would He find it in your heart and in mine, in the works we do, the words we say? It's an important question to ask. But an even more important question to answer by how we live in the days to come. Amen. Amen.